This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's up, Walkout Nation? Welcome back to the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. We've got a buddy, Cully. You know, last time we did this remote, now we got you here in person. It's finally good to meet you in person. It is. Yeah. It's really good to be, you know, down here where we came down for NAPE, you know, big conference. I think yeah. some of NAPE's getting blown up by this Delta variant, but we still made the trip with a decent sized group. And yes. to I made a, I made a folks. tweet last night because all the parties are canceling last minute. And so I made a tweet. I said, Hey, unfortunately due to COVID, we're going to have to cancel our party last minute. I was like, no, just playing. We got 800 people signed up. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Let's fucking go. <laughs> Someone was like, Someone's like, this is why you're better than TPH. I was like, that's that's it. We're the best we're, investment we're bank to be, in town. You know, we're trying to be careful about it, but it, I don't know. With all the vaccines out there and everything now, I think we you just have to make your own calculation. And yeah. seeing people in person does have a value. Yeah, we haven't seen some of our partners for like two years, and we've done mm-hmm. so much business with them. It's that's crazy too. It's, when you're it's building, it's crazy a, to do that much business with somebody you've never met in yeah. person. When you're building yeah. a startup too, man, the challenges that go along with that yeah. of you know trying to build when you can't even see people face to face. At some point, you just have to make the trip and see the person shake the hand and it's yeah. so much different like i don't think that'll ever go away are you guys are you guys working remote now or are you guys still in the office or we are you know for a long time it was come into the office if you want to if you feel safe about it mm-hmm. people have different circumstances at home we were very flexible on it um, now we're going towards more of a you know let's get everybody in the office three days a week yeah um, and we've got a whole policy and set of procedures on how we're going to keep people safe around that it's always evolving though. I mean, the, the information's changing, the risks are going up and down. Yeah. And so we kind of have to react to that. That's been one of the parts of managing, you know, we're 75 people now. Yeah. That's crazy. And it's in three very different cultural settings. We've got Denver, we've got San Francisco, and we've got Williston. <laughs> and so the dynamics between those three places, it can be, you know, it's obviously Especially really, Williston. <laughs> Williston's <laughs> definitely an outlier. It know, can be but. hard to manage, but I think if we get it right, and I think we are generally blending these things together in a way that makes a super interesting culture. How do you get Williston in San Francisco? That's what I would love to be. <laughs> we, we do, can we, can we, we set up a behind the scenes vlog? That's a reality so show. We, so, you know, we got a, a hog from 4-H up in Williston. Yeah. We had a big barbecue where we opened our new warehouse. We bought a 35,000 square foot warehouse. Jeez, nice. Um, thank you to the, the state of North Dakota for, you know, some support on that. And, yeah. And it's good to, do 4-H because you get into the local community, support the local, you know, kids, the, the young farmers. And that was a time where we brought a bunch of people from San Francisco, a bit, mm-hmm. especially a bunch of new people on the team who had just graduated from like Berkeley or, you know, Harvard or MIT or something. And then we brought them to Williston and it was just super interesting to watch the, the collisions there, the conversations, because they're talking to our mechanics, our electricians, people that have been working in the oil field all day. I think there's a lot of respect when you actually like go out into the field and see this is really hard. This guy is also really technical. He's like mm. solving problems with no support. He yeah. just like knows <laughs> how to troubleshoot this thing. It built a lot of respect. And then obviously the the engineers were were part of the conversation too. And I think everybody was just exchanging a lot of good I information. I think that's such a good point. It's like bridging the gap. One, you look at people from San Francisco, they can't have any perspective of people out in these oil field towns, you know, Williston, Midland, Tulsa, wherever it may be, because they've never been there, right? And so they don't, they just don't have any perspective to understand. But once they actually go out there and meet people 
and see the challenges that come along with it. I think that it clicks pretty easy in that respect. I think built. so. I was, uh, so I, um, I made a quick trip up to Oklahoma and I took some, uh, guys from China, some Chinese miners to a oil site and then couldn't make it to them, uh, to Midland with them, but I sent them off to Midland and seeing these crypto guys interact with, I mean, you're talking Tulsa and Midland. I mean, that's like as oil as it gets, right? And seeing the interaction, you know, they're walking around with their Binance backpacks and you got these, you know, rednecks working the wells and just the clash of culture. And it's funny, like one of them, when he went to Midland, he hit me up. He's like, Hey, where can I buy a cowboy hat? I was like, well, you can go to Pee Wee Dalton's or, you know, Boo Barn or wherever. And he sends me a picture of him in a cowboy hat in front of a pump jack and like they're loving it. Like they were like thrilled by <laughs> it. Awesome. You know, you see the you see the respect that's built just once they get out there and, and get their hands on it. We have it. this uh we have this one software engineer who's he's he's French. His dad is a climate scientist in France. Oh yeah. And and he went to Harvard. And so this guy joined the team. He was ex extremely excited about the sort of like climate aspect of reducing methane emissions and flaring and he didn't get to go out to the field because of COVID for like more than a year. And finally we sent him up there to sort of work with the mechanics because he builds a piece of software that helps to manage the interaction yeah. between the generator and the data center. Mm -hmm. And I was like, honestly pretty nervous about how this cultural interaction was going to go. And he came back and was like more hyped than ever about the company. <laughs> it's like, I love these guys. They're the best people I've ever met. He was just like raving about it. And I think they really, you know, bonded with him too. That's on the awesome. field side all these are good people and yeah. people just have this perception because of how polarized the media gets and yeah. how crazy our little, you know, vacuum chambers of, of information can be. Most people are good people trying to do the right thing and yeah. you just have to get them together to actually realize that. Yeah. It's like, uh, one of mine and Jake's, uh, partners at our last startup, he's, uh, from South Korea, super intelligent data scientist, one of the smartest, uh, you know, just mathematicians I've met. And the only two places that he's lived in the U.S. are San Francisco and New York. And so he moved down here to Houston and he's like, Colin, I want you to take me to Midland. I want to see these wells, you know, firsthand. And I started laughing. I was like, you have to have me out there to take you. Like, I need to be like your translator, like your tour guide, or else you're going to get eaten alive out in the West Texas oil fields. So, um, but I, just I love like, that stuff, though. Yeah, it's like the I most fun it. part. No, it is. It is. Like, I love that clash. And, you know, we didn't even start off this podcast by telling, you know, what you guys do at Crusoe. Um, so, Crusoe's been on the podcast. I think it was. Um, it's back in like December, January time. Yeah, frame you know, that? probably beginning of 2021 or end of uh, 2020. And, we were laughing before we got on the mic because Jake and I recorded, I think, three remote podcasts just because people weren't traveling with COVID. And uh, Coley was one of those. And after those three, we said, fuck that. We're not doing that anymore. <laughs> like, it wasn't fun. Um, but if you don't know, you can go back and you can check out that episode with Crusoe. Um, they're one of the leading Bitcoin mining off of uh, flared gas companies. I don't know how you, you know which a one liner is, but that's what they do. They mine Bitcoin and have these uh, data centers that are out on uh, oil and gas uh, sites, backed by you know like Winklevoss twins. Who else y'all have behind y'all? So we just raised the Series B, uh, and the lead there was Valor Equity Partners. Okay. Super interesting group. They uh, they were kind of the primary investor into Tesla through all their private oh, rounds. Wow. Nice. nice. And uh, they've, you know, they're big supporters of all of Elon's companies uh, and they're very operationally oriented. So they're unlike a lot of VC investors out in Silicon Valley, they like hardware and they like operationally intensive businesses. And they have a whole team of engineers that they kind of drop into their portfolio companies to help 
almost like on a consulting basis, solve these different problems. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're incredible. We've also got Bain Capital Ventures, Founders Fund. Yeah. Um, there's been quite a few in Founders Fund. Yeah. Some of the more crypto oriented investors like Polychain. Mm. Um, in this last round, we had Lower Carbon Capital joined, which oh, is nice. Chris, yeah. Chris Sack. Fund. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, you know, big Did you get to meet him? Um, I've, I've met Clay over okay. the, you know, over video. Clay okay. Dumas is his partner. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I've talked to Clay. Clay is yet, a good but guy. Looking forward to that. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, I saw your pictures because you go on this fucking insane run. So I want to talk about this side tangent. hundred and something mile run or something like that? 107. Where was Oof. this? This is like in South Dakota? It was it was North Dakota. Oh, so North it started, Dakota. It was through Teddy Roosevelt National Park. It's called okay. the Madahe. So story of this trail is super interesting. It's it's a it's a hundred and forty something mile trail in total, I think, but 107 of it are relatively, you know, super well maintained. And and there's this one guy who's made it his life's mission to just preserve this trail. He is from North Dakota. He fell in love with this land and it wasn't being funded properly and he's started this race series to raise money to preserve this trail it goes through the badlands of north dakota which are incredibly beautiful i didn't even know it was a national park it's not one you ever hear about you hear about like badlands national park yeah in south dakota yeah but this was actually the area that inspired teddy roosevelt to create the national park system mm, yeah and uh, he sort of like played out the last years of his life living on a ranch in these badlands like that's where he chose as the president of the united states to like kind of spend his later years oh that's pretty cool uh, and so basically it, the the race has multiple different levels to it there was everything from a 5k to a 10k half marathon marathon 50 miler and then a 107 mile ultra marathon you were like that sounds fun let's do the 107 <laughs> <laughs> and so we have been kind of talking about it, almost joking about it as a company of like, wouldn't that be crazy if somebody ran the full Madahe? Uh, and we sort of made a, 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 you know, like a joking attempt at it last year, but then Chase and I got serious about it. You know, Chase has climbed Mount Everest. So Chase is my co-founder. Yeah. You know, I've, I've run Ironmans and I'd run 50, 50 mile ultras with Chase. We'd, you know, we like, we could make a real attempt at this. Yeah. We so it's 50 miles, like the furthest you had gone before. That's the furthest I'd ever gone at one length. Okay. So and you're this, like, fuck it. Let's this double This run it. <laughs> had 10,000 feet of climbing. Oh. The Badlands are not flat. They are all mountains. No, that's what I was going to say. I've, I've drove through the Badlands. I've drove across North Dakota and I mean. Yeah, that's what makes it pretty. But it, yeah. It's the topography. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah. And, and it got up to hundred degrees. So you had 107 miles, hundred degrees plus temperatures and more than 10,000 feet of climbing. That was kind of the setup. And we told our whole company, like, I want everybody to pick a distance that you're comfortable with on this lineup and then take the next one higher. Like, let's all try something that so we're not sure So you guys did it as do. a company? Yeah, so we brought the whole company. We Jeez. sponsored the event. So the Crusoe logo was on the back of the of the, the medallion yeah. finish line. And we yeah. sponsored the finish line, you know, contributed to this effort to conserve the, yeah. the land. And uh, we we got like more than twenty of our people to come along for this. That's this awesome. was also when we did the warehouse opening that I was telling you about. Yeah. So we kind of you know got a few birds with one stone, and then you know the last day of July, six a.m. Chase and I showed up at the starting line for the full one hundred and seven. There were eighteen other people that showed up, and uh, I think like already a quarter of the people that had signed up didn't even show up to the <laughs> the starting line. Yeah. And uh, we started running, and so we you know the first. There's four marathons consecutively, right? That's yeah. what that distance is. And that's kind of how we were framing it mentally. Yeah. Is like the first one or two, we've done that distance before. We know it's going to be hard, but we can get to 50 miles. 
And the 50 miler that we'd done before was in the headlands of California. So it was actually more climbing over a shorter distance. So we knew we could sort of take the, the climbing. Um, and then beyond 50 miler was just sort of our imagination of like, how bad is that going to get? Yeah. And, and, and Chase in particular knew that the heat was going to be a struggle for him because he trained in San Francisco at nights because he had two young kids. So he's basically getting out with a headlamp to train and it's cool. Yeah. He's not getting the temperatures. And I yeah. was training in Colorado during the days where it was pretty hot. Yeah. Um, so we got to 45 miles in and, and Chase had been getting hammered by the heat. You, I could tell like he was, we were having to, you know, take some pit stops in, in shade under trees and at the rest yeah, aid stations, he was kind of like holding ice against his neck under his armpit, just yeah. trying to do everything to cool down. At 45 miles, he started vomiting, just pure heat stroke. Jeez. Um, and it looked like it was going to be unrecoverable. We spent maybe almost an hour trying to see if we could get that under control. But at some point it wasn't, it, it was clear that that was, that was a really serious sort of like medical situation. Yeah. Um, so he kind of put pause on his race there and I ran ahead and this was getting into dusk at this point. So we started at 6 a.m. The idea is you run through the night and then finish the following day. Yeah. And so just, just straight through 107 miles. And what, one thing that was interesting is I think a lot of our teammates, they all came to volunteer and support us. We had seven, seven pairs of our teammates that came to the different checkpoints to have pre-packed bags of food, water, ice. That's what I was saying. Is there like anyone on the trail, like monitoring you guys? Or are you just running through the badlands at nighttime by yourself? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like pretty sparsely supported from the race perspective. So we brought our own people roughly yeah. every, every eight miles, but it could be anything from four to 14 miles. Between yeah. checkpoints, we'd have some of our people there gotcha. to have some drinks and, and food. And so I think they were like, you know, essentially the boss has asked me to give up my weekend to come up and like stand by the side of a trail and hand a drink out. And I don't know how much I like this. <laughs> and I think once they really saw what the event was, it was super exciting and inspiring for everybody. They're like, this guy's been running for 30 hours <laughs> <laughs> and I have an opportunity to be a part of getting to the finish line here. Yeah. This is this is really exciting. Um, it, it definitely brought the team together. So 45 miles in, Chase had to pull out because of heat stroke. And you know, I ran ahead into the in, into dusk. He got on the phone, Chase got on the phone with one of his friends who's a really hardcore ultra marathon Ironman guy. And the guy started making fun of Chase. <laughs> he was like, get back out there. And and Chase like went and ran another 15 miles Did at he? that point. <laughs> and then I think the heat stroke was just like so intense that it wasn't safe. You know, you, you can't have like kidney or, or brain yeah, it can kill failures you. from this. So it can kill you. I mean, he made the right decision and I'm proud of him for making that decision. Ultimately after 60 miles, he like fully, you know, pulled out of the race and, and that was hundred percent the right call. Dude, look, 60 miles is not still pretty good. And that was a personal <laughs> I've never run 60 miles. Still pretty, <laughs> still pretty good. Look, dude, I ran a mile. <laughs> the, a couple of days ago and I was dying. Like I'm a fighter. I don't have to run from things. Like <laughs> I don't run. Uh, so I, like running 107 miles is unfathomable. So that, me. I, I mean, that was that. still a personal record for him. And you know, this is a guy who's climbed Mount Everest. It's not, he's not like that's sketchy. Giving that's up a whole nother podcast. <laughs> easily, right. Um, it, but so I, you know, I, I was doing better with the heat because part of the training was that I was in hot conditions and, and generally like I'm a little you know more comfortable in the heat. I ran through the night. The night's terrifying because your headlamp is picking up the retinas of all the animals in the woods. So <laughs> up on top of the Badlands, it's you can see for miles, super safe. You can see anything around you. And then you go down into the dark valley with the trees. 
and it's just eyes looking at you, just like tons of retinas <laughs> staring at you from the woods. That's what I was, that's what I was asking running through the Badlands. I'm like, dude, you're you're not the it top of the food chain out there. It was honestly, it was terrifying. Like there was yeah. a steady drip of adrenaline going for sure. And it, it made the night fly by from sort of a exhaustion perspective. It was just this blur of sort of like, I'm surviving. I'm trying not to, is that a mountain lion? Is that a bear? I ran sure, right man, by it feels a porcupine. Like, yeah, like, just like pure, like, you know, you're just kind of like one with nature and survival. And like that kind of keeps you going it to was. some extent. And then once the sun rose and I let my guard down, I realized how exhausted and sleepy I was. At that point, you know, that was 24 hours into the thing. So I took a 20 minute nap in one of our, our team's cars. I just like put the seat back. Mm. I had a, one of those buffs, you know, those like neck gator things. I put yeah. it over my eyes, snoring like dead, the deepest sleep I've ever had for 20 minutes. Popped up, you know, ate, ate a quesadilla. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wish I had some Little Caesars out there. <laughs> yeah. We missed a hell of an opportunity for Little Caesars to yeah. get you carb loaded. <laughs> and then sort of like knew that the heat was coming again. And so I tried to dial up my, my speed until it got really hot. We made a lot of good headway. The third marathon sort of knocked that out before it got hot. And then the fourth and final one was just back into the oven. Uh, hundred degrees again. Yeah, and I was nervous that what happened to Chase was going to happen to me. But my dad showed up on a mountain bike. He came up to support, and he That's kind badass. of like it gave me comfort in the sense that if I really got bad with heat stroke, I could worst case just kind of coast out to the aid station and pull out of the race on the bike. Yeah, and that just comfort factor was really nice. And you know, ultimately, I you know got to the finish line in thirty two hours twenty minutes. Jeez, there were only eight people that finished the thing. It yeah. was absolutely just. Dude, I saw the Crushing. pictures that <laughs> you posted. This is so badass. I saw the pictures that you posted of your feet. Your toes were ripped apart. Like yeah. your skin, it was nasty. We'll throw it up on the screen so people can see it if they're watching on YouTube. I, but I didn't even have any skin. Like the, <laughs> I took, the, I, I, I lost the toenails. I lost all the skin on some toes. The blisters were something I'd never even thought a foot could do. It was yeah. like balloons down there. And when I got back to Denver. So sorry I guys, Cole can't work for the next couple of weeks. He lost his the, feet. <laughs> I went straight to the urgent care and the doctor was like, oh my God, you've delaminated your toes. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing that could be done. I didn't know my toes were laminated, but Jeez. they put my feet into burn cream. They, yeah, they, mm -hmm. uh, cause of the risk of infection, they put me on antibiotics Yeah, just as a, uh, you know, prophylactic antibiotics. And yeah, it took about a week. The, you know, sort of recovered. What kind of shoes did you wear? You got to- like, Solomon. You got to give a shout out to the, I was thinking about that. Like, can your shoes even stay together for 107 yeah, I switched shoes through halfway through. You go through three rivers. So yeah. they were soaked and full of sand. And so I switched shoes after the last river. Bring a few pairs with you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, dude, that is, I mean, props to you, man. I'm not going to do that shit, but. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, to bring it full circle though, the whole reason was to, we we have these like five values, the core values of the company. We put them on our website. You know, the first one is think like a mountaineer, and it's about planning ahead, thinking safely, having backup plans, having you know, being a master of your tools. Mm -hmm. And this race, that's all think like a mountaineer. We used it as a parable, basically, to illustrate yeah. how strongly Chase and I feel about these five values. We spent a lot of time thinking about them, writing them. Um, and in different ways, that race was a good way to illustrate to the team. All those things we've grown so quickly to 75 people that a lot of people haven't heard us speak about those or like seen that we we actually take them seriously a lot of companies have some values they might throw out there but you never hear about them after they're 
yeah. announced. Yeah. Uh, we, we talk about them in almost every meeting. You know, if there's a difficult decision to make and we can't make the decision otherwise, we'll resort to like, well, what would the values tell us to do? Dude, I think, I think core values are, I don't want to say undervalued, but they're so cliche that I don't think that, you know, you think of it like a corporation having core values, like doesn't really mean anything to the employees, but in startups, I mean, it is the identity of the company and you just brought up a good point. Like if you have a hard decision to make, fall back on your core values, what do the core values say? And that happened, I mean, with us a couple of weeks ago, we have our core values that we very much believe in. That's what the company's built on. And we had a tough decision to make, you know, like how do we handle how we, you know, we have data, how do we handle that? And it was very easy when one of our new hires is like, well, our core values says this and like, fuck That's yeah, great. you're right. And so, you know, Ballcatters isn't near as big as you guys. We have eight people, you'll have 70 plus as you scale the company, it's, you know, how do you get the rest of the new hires and the new team built, you know, kind of bought into the culture and understand, Hey, these core values are actually important to us. And it's hard, you know, when you're scaling up that fast, like, you know, you guys aren't preaching it to the new, new team members, like you were the, the original team. So that's I, a challenge. I think itself. that's right. I mean, at some point when you, you grow past a certain point where you can directly manage every person in the company and all the decisions of the company at a smaller scale that was still possible. And at some point we realized we can't manage all this. The only way to manage it is to influence it through values and example setting. And if we just can, you know, enforce that model that everyone else should see that and use that as a, as a, a guide for making their own decisions and how they're going to behave in the company. And Obviously, at seventy people, like there are a lot of folks that I won't I won't communicate with regularly in three offices. If there wasn't some other overarching framework, they would just sort of drift off into other different cultures or behaviors that we may or may not like and may yeah. or may not want as part of the company. So, by being really clear, this is how we do things here. This is this is what we think is valuable here. It, it brings people closer together, especially that cultural gap that already would exist between a San Francisco and a Williston. Yeah. It's that much more important to keep yeah. those people glued together somehow. Absolutely. I'm kind of curious as you guys were growing, you know, you've grown essentially so fast, you know, kind of speaking to culture, is it kind of putting people that were there early on in these kind of management positions or did you kind of have any external guys and then kind of getting them kind of caught up to speed on the culture and making sure they're mashing or I'm kind of curious to, hear a little bit more about that journey. Yeah, we're, you know, we're opening a new facility in Oklahoma. Um, it's going to be more of a, of a computer repair facility. Um, and so that'll be a whole new team we're hiring there. We're looking to hire 18 people in, uh, in Tulsa. Nice. And the, the thought is we're going to bring some cultural seeds down from Williston, where we do a lot of our own computer repair work up there. Uh, we're going to like vastly scale up that that workflow we're going to bring the cultural carriers down from mm -hmm. an existing crusoe site and let them set the example for this new team yeah uh, so that that's our approach to that kind of thing it, it is a risk because that's a big chunk of new it's almost like dilution right it's a different way of thinking about dilution yeah. you're diluting your culture when you bring in a bunch of people that don't know you know what the norms are yeah and so the way to protect against that is to try to like build it back up within that group and not yeah. grow beyond that until you feel like you've got the, the integration process kind of done, dialed in, you're comfortable with that. Then you add some more people. 
Yes. It's so, never perfect, but yeah. in theory, that's the way we'd like to go about it. Are you going to have to run the race on a yearly basis to remind everyone of the core values or is that a one, one time <laughs> thing for you? <laughs> so I told my wife I'm retired. We've got a, uh, our first baby coming in October. Oh, awesome. So this Congrats, was my, yeah. this is my, uh, opportunity. Yeah. To knock this out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the amount of training required, uh, was from a time perspective was just too much. You know, it's like pretty unfair. Yeah. <laughs> can't put that, can yeah. barely ask my wife to deal with that. I definitely couldn't ask a baby yeah. and my wife to deal with that. Yeah. I imagine. <laughs> yeah. I just like, I, like I said, I run a mile and I'm like, dude, I don't like running at all. I just can't imagine. I think I would, like, I literally think I would die. It, it's a beat down. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hard, it's a hard thing. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy, man. But yeah, I mean, it's great to do challenge. Like for me, like, you know, as a fighter, it's like, I want to get in the cage. Like that's like, you know, it's kind of my, um, it's just, I have to do it. That's something challenging to me that I want to do. So if it's like, you're a runner that's done Ironmans and marathons. Like that's like the ultimate test for you. It's like, Hey, let's see if we can do this 107 mile race across. So what kind of fighting are you doing? MMA. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Are you competing? Yeah. So I compete in grappling right now in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, uh, me, my wife, all my kids, we've trained for, you know, almost six years now. Really? Amazing. And so for me, it's like, I want to do something that, you know, pushes my limits and is challenging for me. And it's almost kind of like my rite of passage. And that thing for me is like, Hey, I need to get in the cage with someone that's trying to kill me and you do it. It's tough requires, you know, it's all, the, it's all about prep, right? Like the challenge in itself, it's hard, but like the amount of discipline you had to have in the training up to that, it's a ton of time. Sure. Staying consistency. Committed, consistency. Like that's that's the hard part. Oh, 100%. I mean, these things are, they're very related. You know, success in like in life or in career, I think it, it's hard for me to imagine how somebody could be successful if they didn't have some physical discipline also. It just like keeps, it sets the tone for the rest of your day. Yeah. Um, you know what's funny about that? You're like, holding yourself to a standard, right? I agree with that. But there's always been like this cliche, like think about it, like in, in any movies or cartoons, it's always like, the wealthy people, successful people are always like some fat bankers. And I'm just like, that's not, I don't know if that's like a generational thing for us. Like every, like most successful people I know put a ton of time and attention and discipline into physical and mental health as well. And then I, I think that's the foundation for success in business. I mean, I, I'm a pretty big believer in that. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are many ways to skin the cat, but that's, that's the only way that I've ever yeah. known. I mean, if, if I feel like I'm not physically in a good spot it's hard for me to get anything else 100 percent. right 100 percent. just building up that mental toughness over time mm -hmm. telling yourself to do the hard things that one hard thing that just absolutely sucks every day then it makes everything else easier i think that's probably right yeah i, I need to follow up with you on this mma because my my wife and i were talking so we're gonna have a baby girl yeah and my like protective instincts are starting to kick in and, and you know we're talking <laughs> about you know like what kinds of camps and activities we were excited for her to get into yeah things we want to teach her and, and my wife was like, oh, we could, you know, like, you know, like maybe like tennis teams or like ballet came up. I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. And, and also like MMA and, <laughs> and free gun competitions. Yeah. Like, yeah. I want this girl to be able to take care of herself. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I'm just, I'm just gonna, yeah. I'm gonna have to like constantly fight that urge to just, yeah. You know, like, Look, I mean, I, I'm a huge advocate for grappling uh whether it's brazilian jiu-jitsu and wrestling you know all three of my kids started training when they were four years old and so i have a daughter as well and i have full confidence that by the time she's 16 that she can 
take care of herself. And I mean, you can ask Jake, like these 16 year old kids in our gym, killers, Look, they're killers. Like I am a full grown man, despite what Twitter says, uh, <laughs> <laughs> three quarter grown man, three quarter grown man. I know how to fight. And there's 16 year old kids that can whoop my ass. Like that's a testament to, you know, I when how I first started this one kid was like 15 years old and I did not take it seriously. <laughs> he, <laughs> he just came in there and was on me like a spider monkey. I was yeah. like, okay, I'll never make that mistake. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, you know, my wife, she, she trains and she's one of the best female grapplers in Houston and she trains up the kids classes. And like, I have confidence like, Hey, she, she was put in a spot. She's dangerous enough to, to handle things. And so it's funny, you kind of go, even when I started training jiu-jitsu, I was like, I remember distinctly telling the guy that owned school, like, hey, I'm not not going MMA. I'm never doing that. I just want some self-defense. I want to be able to protect myself and my family. And then that quickly evolves and uh, like, fuck, I got to get in the cage and, and fight I mean, someone. It's fun, so, right? It's probably yeah. really fun once you get into it. It's extremely. We I mean, have one person on our team that has an MMA background and she's the sweetest person you would never expect. She, she manages our warehouse in Williston. And on the side, you know, uh, I think not anymore, but five, five years ago or so, she was extremely passionate about MMA. Yeah. And I was asking her like, what was the, like the best fight you were ever in or tell me some stories. She said, well, I was really honored when I was invited to the uh, Sydney, Montana backflips and beatdowns. It's like, oh, <laughs> what, what is that? She said, well, it's a cage fight. And when I'm fighting this other woman in this cage, uh, somebody's doing backflips over the cage on a dirt bike. <laughs> <laughs> What kind of backwoods redneck event is this? It's so funny because I have another funny story about MMA fights in Williston. And so they had these amateur uh, fights in Williston (laughs) followed by a vanilla ice concert. (laughs) So you can imagine the setting. And anyways, uh, I was up there running some expandable casing and my coworker was there and I'd left. um, So I wasn't there, but I had to go bail him out of jail because he got arrested and he couldn't make it to the job with me. And I was like, that's why you don't go to MMA fights in, in Williston, especially when there's a vanilla ice concert. Like, wow. <laughs> I mean, I, I had to respect her story though. Was, yeah. This is, this is impressive. But it's funny because like you talked about her personality, like she's sweet. Like Very. that's how Very. a ton of people are in like one of my coaches, Alex Sacconi, he's one of the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu grapplers in the world. Guy is, how tall is he? Probably like 6'3", 230 pounds is a monster. And he has a heart of gold, like mm-hmm. is the biggest, you know, I mean, just guy wants to help out everyone. And so it's a pretty big testament to just, um, you know, MMA. Don't get me wrong. Like you have assholes in MMA, especially, but like when it comes to grappling, I don't think there's anything better to get your kids in because it gives them skills that they can use and confidence. All right. I'll follow up with you. We'll get some coaching. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Maybe we'll get her out of diapers first. <laughs> I, I definitely suck you guys into my jujitsu cult. <laughs> All right. So when we had you on like nine months ago, it was seemed like, just the whole concept of like Bitcoin mining and oil and gas was relatively new. And you guys were kind of like pioneering that. And just in a very short period of time, it seems like the whole landscape is like changed and evolved. And there's a lot more like players and stuff. And I don't know if they, you guys consider them as competitors or not, but I'm just kind of curious on your take as, as things are evolving. Cause it just seems like every day somebody new is reaching out Hey, we're doing this Bitcoin mining thing. Hey, we're doing this Bitcoin mining thing. So what are, what are your thoughts on the landscape? It's, like where does this go? It's been pretty amazing to watch. I mean, I, Early on, I remember taking this idea to somebody very early on before we'd done it. We were looking for partnerships and ways to get this off the ground. And someone told me, no version of this will ever work. And I always remember that. It was extremely- That's how you know something's going to work. It was extremely <laughs> discouraging at the time. Yeah. It was somebody that had been super successful. 
Yeah. Um, not in this space, but just like this off the cuff comment. I don't know how much they thought about that. Was this like five, six years ago? Uh, this, yeah, probably, I don't know. It's probably 2018 or something like okay. that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think we've gone from there where people thought it was, it was, you know, a crazy idea and it would never work to where we are, where this is what everybody wants to do. This is like the cool thing. Did you send them the do. press release for the series B? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. We just raised $126 million. <laughs> think it's in working. Equity. It's working, bud. <laughs> and we're, we're, you know, we're, we're fundraising for more on top of that from the yeah. credit markets. So there's, you know, we've built out as, as Crusoe, we've built out a, a real piece of infrastructure in the energy industry. It is one of the only solutions. I've really spent a lot of time in my career trying to understand what are what are environmentally good things that are also good for the economy that pay for themselves. Mm. They're so hard to find those because usually people think if it's if it's green or clean, it must be more expensive. In this case, it's not. It's like it's good on all three dimensions of that triangle of ease that we talked about last time: mm-hmm. energy, economy, environment. This is something you deploy this, flaring goes down, methane emissions go down, cleans up the air in terms of we have catalysts on the units that scrub out all the NOx and this carbon monoxide and VOCs. And it's, you know, they don't have to pay for it. The oil operator is getting a free solution for flaring. We pay them a bit for the gas. Um, so there's a revenue where there was a zero before. Mm-hmm. And they've solved their big ESG problem, which is unmitigated flaring and methane emissions from that. These flares don't fully combust the methane. I think the more that we've learned about that, the more that's actually like a pretty big. So that's the pushback that get a lot on Twitter and other mediums is that there is no ESG angle for Bitcoin mining. That combusting gas in a generator isn't cleaner than flaring it, and so there's a lot of pushback from that angle. Which, on the same note, they'll say, "Hey, look, from a cap." capitalistic perspective like if it makes money cool that's fine but stop bullshitting and saying that there's a green angle to it can you dive into how you guys think in some of the data that y'all have in terms of um like what you just said there where you know flaring isn't combusting 100 percent, and you have scrubbers and things like that running on gin sets to make yeah, it cleaner 100%. this is like the most important thing to me um to make sure this message is out there and people understand the details of it. It is a nuanced, sometimes technical thing, but like we should definitely talk about this. So flares, the uh, the standard assumption is that flares combust 98% of the methane, of the gas, which is mostly methane. And methane is 84 times more potent than CO2 as a greenhouse gas. So let's start there. Like any methane you can eliminate from going to, to the atmosphere, it's a really good thing on the on the on the greenhouse gas equation. The 98% comes from an EPA study that was done in the 70s or 80s and hasn't really been updated or revised much since. There, there have been a couple of updates to it, but that number has never changed. And it, the, the sort of basis behind that number is when we talk to all these academic institutions, we've, and we've talked to lots of universities that have professors that study this, it's like super in question. That 98% is probably not the right number. When, and when we go up to the Bakken and we see on a hundred mile per hour wind day, this flare is bent over 90 degrees. The, the, it's clearly not burning 98% of the gas. Um, the velocity of the gas coming out of the flare changes, that changes the combustion efficiency. Um, there are a lot of different variables that most of these professors and academics are suggesting the number is quite a bit lower. And they've, they've given us numbers that are everything from 
you know, 90%, 93%. In some really bad cases, if the gas velocity and the wind is wrong, it can be down to 50%. So that's a ton of methane going to the atmosphere. The EDF, Environmental Defense Fund, um, went out to the Permian with drones and surveyed a few hundred flares over six months in the Permian. They put out a report in early 2021 that was showing that on average, it was 7% leakage. So they're having um, a lot of unlit flares, a lot of malfunctioning flares, and then they used, for, for the flares that were lit, they still used the 98%, but they just accounted for the problematic flares on top of that. Mm -hmm. That got to 97%. So if you updated the 98 to something more realistic, it's the, the actual achieved combustion efficiency is probably you know, below 93, maybe yeah. below 90. Um, so when we, we take 93, because like, we can at least point to the EDF study, if we just put that through our generator and our generator gets 99.89% combustion efficiency on stack tests, we actually test the emissions, we are eliminating almost 100% of that methane leakage. That translates to a 63% reduction in CO2 equivalent emissions compared to flaring yeah. right? because of the methane that we're taking out of the equation. On top of that, we're removing NOx, which is like more than 200 times as potent as CO2. We do that with our catalysts in the emissions control system. Um, we're also taking out VOCs and carbon monoxide. That's a smog. That's a human health issue, which obviously a flare doesn't have a catalyst. So that's you know cleaning up the air for the local community. Are these like built into the generators? Yeah, we've got the best possible catalysts that you can basically specify in the marketplace. Um, these are hospital grade. You know, you could permit this next to a hospital mm -hmm. in a lot of jurisdictions. It's it's as clean as we can possibly make the emission stream. But from a greenhouse perspective, from a climate perspective, the big thing is methane reduction. And the best estimate we can point to a, a, a really credible third party on right now is that 93% number. That's probably um, optimistic. Probably the impact we're having is even bigger than that in terms of reducing methane emissions. Yeah. So it, it is actually the dollar for dollar, it is the best climate. It is much better than a solar panel or a windmill, right? Like we, we will get uh, six, five to seven times more carbon emissions reduced out of the equation per dollar invested than a solar panel or a windmill because the solar panel or the windmill only runs part of the time and um, because it doesn't take any methane out of the equation. It's just offsetting carbon emissions from some other generator. Whereas what we're doing is taking a wasted energy stream and reducing methane. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by our partners over at Liquid Frameworks. You know, we talk a lot about all this cutting edge technology every single week. And what's crazy is that a lot of EMPs and OFS companies are still managing all the field operations in Excel and on paper. With field effects, EMPs and OFS companies can transform how they manage and control field operations while eliminating the mountains of paperwork that comes along with it. Field effects makes field operations easy and efficient by streamlining communication between accounting, field operations, and office management. Now they're trusted by some of the most respected teams in the industry, and now you can hear directly from them at the Liquid Frameworks ConnectFX conference here in Houston on September 14th and 15th. So if you've been thinking about ditching paper and Excel and modernizing your field operations, making your guys' lives a lot easier, come check out the ConnectFX conference. We have a link to the registration page in the show notes, and you can use our code Evolve or Die for $100 off your ticket. Uh, yeah, so, this yeah. is what, you know, you and I have talked about this quite a bit, um, you know, kind of the intersection of sustainability economics and technology and my thing is with any new climate tech you know whether it's renewable traditional renewables like solar and wind um 
I'm a big believer in economics and superior technology winning. And so I don't think that we should subsidize new energy. I think that, hey, we should figure out ways to make better products and to make it where it competes on an economic basis. Because when you look at like, let's take China, for example, like I don't give a damn what you say. China doesn't care about emissions. I mean, you Not look at India. Yeah. These countries don't care. The way to get them to turn to new cleaner energy forms is to make something that's a superior product. And right now, when you look at Bitcoin mining <clears throat> off of flared gas, it checks those boxes. It says, hey, here's a better way to do something. One, if we can cut down on methane emissions compared to flares, we have more efficient generators that are you know, combusting at 98% compared to 93%. But not only that, we're unlocking value from a natural resource instead of just flaring it off and burning it off so it has a better economic uh, benefit for the oil and gas company. And then it's got a better benefit for society as a whole. Like, Hey, we're not just wasting off our nation's resources. Like it's terrible to think that, you know, we have a finite supply of resources in this country and we're just pissing it off in natural gas flares. So if we can actually create value of that and then transmit that value across a network like Bitcoin, that makes sense. It's a winning solution. It checks all those boxes. I mean, I, I agree with you on, you know, I agree with you on the idea that if there's an economic solution, it will drive the outcome. And if, if you can make an environmental solution economic, the best way to get a more environmental outcome, um, because people are just going to do what's in their economic interest. I, I do think these countries like China and India, they, they, they do care about the emissions. They're putting out statements that they're trying to target, you know, China's trying to be carbon neutral by 2060 extremely aggressive yeah, but the goal. problem is is they Who put out they that. put out statements but then they keep building coal capacity and so <laughs> like, <laughs> what you do and what you say are two different things right no, i agree um <laughs> I, I do I, I mean listen it's a legitimate it's a very legitimate problem i'm you know i'm just glad that we have a a way to let's back up if somebody really wants to over the next 20 years mitigate climate the lowest hanging fruit is the flaring natural gas that we're going to, it's going to be flaring otherwise because people mm -hmm. are not going to stop using oil for a while. Even if our, our, our wildest dreams come true on electric vehicles, um, that we'll still need a lot of oil for a long time to keep people alive on this planet. We have 8 billion people here and there's a huge appetite for oil. If we cut it off tomorrow, those people are going to basically die. Um, and that's probably going to be the case for a few decades as we, you know, build out this energy transition. Um, yeah, we did some, some math and, and saw that roughly 18% of the barrels produced globally are associated with a flare. Really? So COVID took out 10% of global oil demand <clears throat> on average throughout that year where it was first spiking. So what we're saying is like, if you wanted to actually stop flaring, you would have to shut off you'd have a double the economic impact of a global pandemic, which was the worst recession yeah, maybe since geez. the Great Depression. Yeah, That's not politically or morally viable. Yeah, That's not going to happen. So the flares are going to persist because the world <clears throat> demands and depends upon oil currently. Yeah. If we're transitioning to other sources, you know, that's, I think, what everybody really wants long-term. It's not really a debate anymore. It's just a question of how quickly it can happen 
and and the practicalities around it. Yeah. In the interim, we need to produce that oil with the minimum possible impact. Yeah. So let's not flare. Let's use it for something beneficial. Let's generate some economic value out of it. Let's <clears throat> especially get that methane stream out of the equation. That's the lowest hanging fruit. It's it's more economic than any renewables installation, uh, any battery installation. It's more economic than nuclear. Uh, it pays for itself to do this. We we should do this. Like that, yeah. I think it's something that we can be really proud of doing. So I would I would push back really strongly on the criticisms that it's not an ESG related thing. I think it's like one of the most ESG related things you can do, especially within the oil and gas industry. Just go to the heart of the 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 issue and clean it up. Um, but yeah, I, okay, I, I would I also push back on your comment that like people don't care and we shouldn't be subsidizing some of these other things. Like there is a problem. We need to solve it. Um, we just try to find good economic sound ways to do it. I yeah, that's the but right that's like approach. the problem is right now, I saw something yesterday that West Texas, you know, if you go out to West Texas, you got, it's an energy powerhouse, right? So you got massive wind farms, mm -hmm. massive solar farms among the oil and gas landscape. But wind is putting out 25 uh, gigawatts of power and there's only five gigs of load in the area. And we don't have like, we don't have the technology to store or transmit, you know, across the state. And so that that's what's always, you know, I know this theory of Bitcoin acting as a battery gets a lot of flack on online, but in concept, I understand it a little bit because it's like, hey, we are harvesting this energy that had nowhere to go. It was stranded and now it's been captured into some form of value and now it can be transmitted across the world. Like that's what's cool to me is that you're literally taking energy that's stranded, has no way of providing any value to society. Whereas you're seeing this right now with renewables, with wind and solar. It's like, cool, we can build these huge wind farms out in the middle of West Texas, but we can't send it anywhere. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's one of the hurdles that we have to figure out as society over the next 10 or 20 years is how do we store that and transmit it. But what's cool about mining Bitcoin off of gas is that it's something that can be done today. And big changes happen in steps, right? It's always step changes. And so my favorite types of technologies are, hey, how can we make oil and gas extraction cleaner, especially methane? Like, you know, you talk about the EDF report. We actually made a video on that. And in that EDF report, they go in and <clears throat> they look at all these wells and they said, hey, there's a ton of natural gas sites that aren't having any rogue emissions from methane. So it's possible to produce natural gas without having rogue emissions so how do we make sure that that happens across every location? And the technologies, it's available today. You know, our last episode, we just had Cube on here, and Cube's mm -hmm. got a badass methane detection system that they've built out. And so all it is now is a matter of people using the technology. And I think that, you know, I've always, you talk about, you guys were kind of discouraged back in the day of having successful people saying this won't work. You know, I was talking about mining off of gas 2017, 2018, and people looked at you like you're batshit crazy. Because not only was like the concept of mining off of natural gas foreign, but just Bitcoin and blockchain. Yeah. Like back then, not a lot of people knew <laughs> what it was and they thought it was a scam, right? And so I imagine the type of resistance that you guys got, but I think people are kind of coming to the light of, hey, this is a solution that makes economic sense. It makes... uh sense for sustainability and ESG initiatives. So like I said, it checks all the boxes. So people should be looking at it. I think so. I mean, look, it, it also works for that wind problem you were, you were just talking about. Yeah. We can put 
load at the congestion point, soak up the excess energy. If yeah. the grid needs more power, we can shut off. Yeah, it, it, it does function in a, it's not like a battery in the sense that it can store the energy and release it later, but it is like a battery in the sense that it can make capacity of it available to the grid and it can, it can support the overbuilding of renewables, which is if, if people really want to get to high penetration of renewables on the grid, clearly we're going to have to overbuild the renewables because of the intermittency of any one site. You're going to need to have redundancy in multiple places that can be generating at any given time. Yeah. That means that the peak generation, if it's really windy everywhere, you're going to have way more power than the grid can absorb. There needs to be either a battery to store it, which right now is prohibitively expensive to do on a sort of like state scale or national yeah. scale. Um, or you need to have industrial loads that can ramp up and down to absorb that and produce some economics out of it. You know, our thought is similar, right? If, if we could, if we can do that, um, it will increase the economics of those renewables. It'll also increase the stability of the grid. Yeah. Because now you've got this extra capacity. You can just demand response. Is that something you guys are, are looking into? Can't say a ton about it. Um, okay. <laughs> can I confirm or die? I think it's a good idea. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So I no. I mean, that's a that's a great point, though. It's you know, I think that we're gonna have to overbuild renewables as well. And how do you handle that, both from a load a load factor and from an economic factor? And it's like, look, the solution servers and mines don't give a shit whether it's natural gas or if it's wind generated power or solar. I mean, it's the same issue, right? Right. And I mean, there's some types of just general data center activity that can also behave like that. It doesn't have to be only Bitcoin mining, but Bitcoin mining is the most energy intensive and responsive type of computing load we can put out there. Yeah. Um, you know, Crusoe, we've got a whole other you know, cloud product uh, in, in development with beta users on it that are doing things that aren't crypto related, but they're yeah. still energy intensive computing. I think that'll make it a little conceptually um, easier for people to connect with when they see that, you know, this is essentially going to be a cloud compute resource powered mm -hmm. by stranded energy. One of the things that it does is, is crypto. It does these other things too. Um, you know, putting that aside though, it's just, there's, there's like a lot of stranded energy in the world. Yeah. We're flaring enough gas globally. If we, if we captured it all, it would power the whole continent of Africa. Yeah. It's just a, cra it's crazy. a billion people. So as a quick refresher, can you walk us through your business model really quickly again? Yeah, I'm sure so, a lot of people are kind of curious now. Sure. Yeah, we so the way we we uh, do it is we you know we work with operators that have stranded natural gas locations. We we have an internal screening process where we will, we will only work with gas that would otherwise be wasted and flared. So we have a carbon neutral, carbon negative mandate for our projects. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of starting there. So we we work with somebody who doesn't have a pipeline connection, and they're likely not going to get one either because it's too far away. It's in a place where the landowners will never give consent to build a pipeline. Um, maybe there are topographical issues. That well's been flaring. It's probably going to be flaring for a long time. And we work out an arrangement where we purchase the gas from the operator. It's not at a price that's competitive with uh, gas midstream, mm -hmm. but it is a price, and that's better than a zero. Yeah. And we bring out, we take all the capital risk on the power generation equipment, the data center, the computers within it, the networking equipment. And that's where the $126 million Series B comes in, right? Yeah, a lot of Just capital. tons of infrastructure, right? And operations. I mean, we've got yeah. a, a pretty big team of mechanics, engineers, technicians, electricians. Yeah. Uh, we have seven electricians on the team, wow. um, including some master electricians. And we come out there, deploy everything, wire it up, pipe it up. So we take gas that was going to the flare. We'd bring it over to our generators. 
they fire up and consume that gas, eliminate the methane leakage problem, right? Uh, the, the power that's produced from that, we wire into the modular data centers. And then each, in each data center, there are several hundred computers. Um, and that's, that's very, basically bringing load and beneficial use to the site of the stranded energy. At the end of the day, that's what we're doing is we're solving a transportation and logistics problem for the gas. There's no way to get it out. You know, let's not get it out. Let's just use it where it is and then transmit the value over the air by satellite in a lot of cases. We've yeah. also got some fiber networks that we've developed out and uh, microwave towers, some really cool networking yeah. technologies that some of our engineers have put together. But um, one way or another, we, we, we think it's easier to transmit a bit than a molecule. That's one of the sayings we have. Yeah. <laughs> so do you guys just keep building up this massive nest egg of Bitcoin or do you like convert it back into USD or fiat in batches or like how do, how do you handle that? Yeah, generally the policy has been more on on monetizing it and converting it back to USD, but um, there's sort of a evolving treasury mm -hmm. side of the business, and we've we've brought on some some people that are on the risk mitigation side. They were former hedge fund traders mm -hmm. to help us with some of that hedging activity, risk mitigation. Yeah. Um, so that that's that's definitely a growing part of the business. Is it's kind of an interesting dynamic for y'all's balance sheet of you know yeah, figuring out you know how much cash you keep on the balance sheet. It's like, okay, you know, I, I would assume in the early stages of the business, it's you're converting all the Bitcoin to fiat. That way you have cash flow into the business, make it sustainable. But as you guys grow, it may make sense to hold some on the balance sheet. Yeah, there, there are some situations where it makes sense to hold more. Um, you know, some of our purchasing decisions, it, it can actually act as as a hedge for us. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's a little nuanced. I was just curious because uh, I saw Palantir bought $50 million worth of gold bars like yeah. yesterday. Really? So yeah, it was kind of just top of mind because they're not profitable. That's but actually terrifying. That's, yeah. that's what I said. It's concerning. That like, company someone knows that has, more about no, you has know, more risk factors on a geopolitical and military level than just about anyone else. It's also what they said too because they said something along the lines of we're buying it um, just in case of, you know, worst case event. I'm like, well, worst case events coming up like <laughs> yeah my wife was i think they said my Black wife Swan was deployed it. you know in, in kandahar which is a whole other you know conversation with what's been going on in the news but i what you know she she uh you know, used palantir and you know i've heard a lot of really great things about the product but they know they're so integrated with what's going on with with different governments and and companies too now i mean they, they yeah. have a corporate arm that um if they're buying that much gold there's a reason for that yeah <laughs> that is that is that is that's why it was that's why it was blowing up on twitter yesterday is because like why the hell are they buying that much gold they know something that we don't know so yeah that's um well we'll see what happens from that but yeah. they definitely quoted a black swan event so we'll, we'll see but yeah so you know on the um like on the on the technical side of mining you have a lot of emps that are looking at mining, but they think that they can do it themselves. And which, I mean, is the nature of any oil and gas company when it comes to technology, right? They think they can do it themselves, but also it's like they do have a lot of smart engineers in-house, right? So what's, you know, what's the real value proposition for EMPs to partner up with you guys instead of saying, hey, take 10 engineers and you guys figure out how to plug in some computers and keep them cooled. Like, where do you guys really, like, where does your um, expertise come into play when it comes to the data centers? Yeah, that's a good question. I, 
there are a lot of ways to lose money doing this yeah. and lose money very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you are proposing to your boss to spend millions of dollars on computers and try it for the first time, you should know that there's like a fairly high odds that you're going to eliminate all that value like in the first month. Yeah. <laughs> and we better be ready to lose so your job. That's like the first thing is just like knowing how to operate it. Well, th these are computers that we're putting in the oil field. Yeah. Snows in the oil field. There are sandstorms in the oil field. There's a lot the of temperature yeah. fluctuations are intense in the oil field. Yeah. So that's the first thing is like just knowing how to do it safely and properly. Um, we've put a lot of engineering into that in terms of the, the way we do our data centers, the way we operate the computers, the standard protocols and things like that. Yeah. So we've been through that learning curve for several years now. We're yeah. by far the largest and most sophisticated operator in this space. Yeah. You know, we've we've got data centers in four states and and growing and um do you see any uh regulatory risk for mining? Um I don't think there's as much when you're doing it off of stranded gas compared to um mining off the grid. But like I know talking to a lot of these Chinese miners, you know, that's very top of mind for them because they just got ran out of China. And so um, they're coming to the U.S. and they're looking at different power sources, whether it's hydro or uh, wind or natural gas. But the state definitely matters to them. And so like when I look at states with low regulatory risk, it's going to be Wyoming, North Dakota, Oklahoma and possibly Texas. But do you think that there's any regulatory risk um, when you're doing it off of flared gas that would otherwise be wasted or or flared? I, I mean, I I don't think there is from a from a you know resource perspective. In North Dakota, they just passed a law that is a tax incentive to do on-site flare mitigation with with data really? centers. So they're awesome. actually giving you a tax credit against your severance taxes to do this and stuff. The flaring. only ones to do that so far. What's that? They're the only ones to do that so far. Uh, Wyoming also passed a. Okay it's like tax free on the gas to do this. Oh, nice. So there are States that are not only uh, that there's not regulatory risk. There's actually regulatory encouragement there Yeah, because they want to get their flaring down. It's a big goal for the governor, governor Burgum in North Dakota. He's like very, he's a tech guy. Yeah. He created a software company and sold it oh, nice. before he became the governor. Nice. And you know, he signed this into law in April after That's a great. very bipartisan vote in both their Senate and the house that created this, this tax incentive to do on-site awesome. flare mitigation. Yeah. So I, I would say there, I mean, these votes were like 84 to four. Super. Yeah, super overweighted, yeah. Um, so I don't think from a resource perspective or a state perspective, I see a, a lot of regulatory risk. There is this infrastructure bill that, um, you know, the Biden administration has put through and there was an amendment in there that dealt with uh, crypto. Yeah, and it was, a lot of talk it was this about that. idea yeah. of, you know, certain parts of the ecosystem should be considered brokers or not. And then there were two other groups of senators that amended the amendment. Um, they came to a compromise that was pretty good. It basically said miners aren't brokers. Um, software developers are not brokers. Did they actually pass that? Hardware wallet are, are not brokers. They didn't pass it, but it sounds like the idea is that there was a there was an agreement that this will go into the House bill. Okay. And so it'll end up in the final language. Yeah, because I'm not a big fan of Ted Cruz, but... He got up there and I mean, just spoke. He, he, he made a good point. Yeah. He spoke the truth on this topic. And my favorite part of what he said was, he's like, let's have everyone stand up in this room that voted against the compromise <laughs> and two minutes explain, you know, what blockchain is. The guy behind and him was, the guy like behind him was just like laughing. laughing. Yeah. I was like, dude, <laughs> please like I put people on blast like that more. Like you don't even understand what you're voting on. How could you possibly make this broad assumption that, or general generalization that, Anyone that's in the Bitcoin or cryptocurrency ecosystem needs to be treated as a broker. 
it kills everything. Yeah. And, no, I think, and back to your earlier question, it's what people don't know that is the risk, it, you know, in terms of we've built all this software to automate our technology after all the lessons we've learned. I mean, these senator, senators may not be as, as familiar with blockchain technology. These oil companies may not be as familiar with with blockchain technology and, and the mining operations. Um, there's a lot of software you need to run these things efficiently. And um, yeah, yeah, there, there's a lot to say about that. But yeah, we, we've, that's why we've got a team of like tens of really, really good software engineers. Yeah, like I had, a, I had a friend that, that was mining in the early days. I mean, he sold his mine in 2018, so he was mining way before that outside of Waco. And um, he was an IT guy, knew what he was doing, and he would tell me stories. He's like, yeah, you'd have a computer burn up, and all of a sudden, you know, you have a whole batch of computers that are on fire. And so, you know, things like like that, like how do you how do you mitigate things, you know, catastrophic failure of your computers, whether that's overheating. Or- well, safety is a huge thing. You know, we've, we've never had any kind of an incident like that. Uh, we've only ever had one rec- recordable injury in the whole company's history. Somebody got a little dust in his eye and – he was fine. Um, we've nice. got a super strong safety culture. You can never have an incident like that in yeah. the oil field. Like that, yeah. that's engineered into the packages from day one. Yeah. On the regulatory side, are the OCC or the Texas Railroad Commission doing any kind of lease mitigation incentives or considering it? Or kind of like, I'm, I'm curious if you have any insight onto kind of where they're standing on that. You know, in Texas, I'm not as, as from, I don't think there's anything, you know, big that's been proposed yet. Maybe there will be. That'd mm-hmm. be good to see. Yeah, I mean, we had the Railroad Commission on our podcast, uh, Jim Wright. I asked him on the podcast. It was probably a year and a half ago or so. And we were talking about flaring because it was a massive just conversation happening around that time and brought up Bitcoin mining to him. And I mean, his answer is, makes economic sense. He's like, that's what I support. I support capitalism. <laughs> and so I think that uh, for them... Texas should be looking at this. I mean, you see the amount of flaring that we have in the Permian Basin. I think it's 300 million cubic feet a day or or something uh, of that nature. I mean, it's a lot of gas. Yeah, I think even uh, I've seen numbers as high as 600 million a day. Yeah. It's a ton. Yeah. It's the it's biggest and in the, in, it's the largest center of flaring in the country. Yeah. I mean, Texas and Texas should have an incentive like, hey, that's a ton of- New Mexico just value. passed a law that, you know, you're no more than 2% flaring- by 2026 oh yeah it's a regulation now dang and so and the thing is is like there's no other solutions out there like there's nothing else to do with the gas like the gas is a byproduct of oil production right and so if you want to produce the oil you have to produce the gas if there's not infrastructure for the gas what do you do with it and so it's either burn it off it's either blood off burn off or now third option is hey we can actually turn this into computing power hash hash rate and start mining Bitcoin. So it just makes too much sense. Yeah. And again, other stuff we've got, we've got some GPUs running in the field on flare gas that are doing rendering graphics rendering. We're doing AI model training. Uh, We had an MIT PhD level paper published on computer vision AI that was powered by flare gas GPUs. Yeah. Like I've pretty cool. And then we have last few years, I've talked about Amazon becoming an energy company and I'm like, why would AWS not come in and acquire Crusoe and then set up, you know, data centers across all types of energy assets and have them running off of, you know, wind, solar, gas, whatever it may be. I mean, our view is that it is the, it is the lowest cost, greenest data center. Yeah. If you're actually mm-hmm. honest with yourself about what's going, the emission stream 
when you boil it down to the fundamentals, this is the best way economically and environmentally to do to do a data center. Yeah. You heard it here first. Well, my, he gets bought by AWS for twenty bill. I'm calling it. <laughs> well, my my talking point is, everyone is, you know, you saw this like three months ago. Heavy push to demonize Bitcoin network for being carbon intensive and using up so much energy. And I'm like, how come the Xbox Live network never gets that criticism? How come Twitter or Facebook or AWS never gets that criticism? Like, is anyone looking at how those servers are are powered? And so I think that, you know, a lot of people don't really think about how the world is energized and how even just sending a tweet, you know, what's your what's your impact that you have? Yeah, we from- say, you know, your cell phone is a refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> you don't see all the computing power that is, you know, on, on the cloud powering all the apps you use, but it's out there and it's spinning up fans and electricity everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the question is, where is that power going to come from? A lot of these data centers, they are, uh, in theory, they are 100% renewable by buying renewable energy credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are some people have varying degrees of confidence in that. And, and if it's not co-located with the power generation source, um, does that incentive actually translate into the renewable you know, yeah. industry growing to, to accommodate that new load? Um, in, in our case, it's just like very clear. There's, there's a wasted energy source. We're taking it, making computing into it. It's all happening right in front of you. Like a whole nother podcast. I could go on rants about financial <laughs> engineering with carbon credits. Isn't the answer to the energy transition. I think that they play, they have a part that they play, but like you said, like there's different, you know, I made that post the other day. I don't know if you saw it on Twitter, but there was a flaming pile of wasted tires out in the that Middle East. That was a crazy video. Yeah, what crazy, was that? Crazy video. It's just a, like, it's a tire dump. And it just they, lights on fire? I don't know how it lit on fire. I don't assume it they burn them, but <laughs> regardless, massive fire. And I was like, don't worry, guys, it's offset with carbon credits. You know, I mean, that was like one neutral. of the worst things I've ever seen. No, that- <laughs> Environmentally, dude, the smoke was jet black. Dude. It was massive. You imagine like the, whole- the talk- to- <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just catastrophic for the environment, right? But I think that, um, you know, I don't think that the answers to climate change are going to be solved by MBAs and Excel spreadsheets with carbon credits. I like solutions where it's like, hey, it's very clear we're taking a wasted asset and we're cutting down emissions from how it's traditionally done and creating economic value. Like, you can't can't argue that. Have you you seen, have you been following the uh, European carbon markets at all? No, Uh, really. So a little bit, yeah. This is a cap and trade system, right? They they created it about, I think it was about 15 years ago, um, and and at first they they over allocated the credit, so there was no tension in the market, right? Everybody had more more credits than they would use. The basic idea is, you know, key industries that emit a lot, utilities, cement, steel, all these things, they they're going to get a certain amount of allowances, and then if they had a shortfall, they'd have to go and and buy those allowances from somebody that had excess. And that would create some kind of a price for carbon an incentive to be more efficient, uh, you know, install systems that would reduce their emissions. So they, they overallocated the emissions early on. And there was basically the price collapsed because nobody needed to go to the market to buy allowances. They had more than they needed. Yeah. And they've tried, this is the fourth attempt at sort of re, re, resetting that allowance level. And it's finally in a point where there's a deficit. There's like a structural deficit on the credits. And the price of carbon in Europe is it's gone from like mid single digit euros to it's approaching 60 euros now. Jeez. And in the penalty, if you, if you emit without an EUA and EU allowance is what they're called is 110 euros 
So it, it would sort of lead you to expect that the price will approach at least that much. Um, but you so still, you owe a long carbon credits. Yeah. You still owe a credit though. You, you pay the fine and still need to get an And you still have to buy the credit. So it could so be that you're saying it should be 220 is yeah. the target. Yeah. Um, anyway, I just think it's it's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting one to look at because they may be, several years ahead of where a lot of other countries are going. China's yeah. now putting a cap and trade program in place. Um, I think, I think California has. It's also interesting lines. though, is like you look at Europe and I posted a graph the other day. I mean, historic supply crunch in natural gas. Right. And so you're seeing electricity prices skyrocket, especially in and coal consumption in, in going up Germany. Yeah. And now they're having to bring coal back online. And so, man, people outside of energy don't realize how complex energy is. And we have to balance, you know, just like the point that you made earlier that you could have twice the economic impact as COVID, which has by far been the worst thing that we've seen in our lifetime if we were to just withdraw, you know, oil and gas consumption. Um, so being able to transition and not put society at risk, make sure that, you know, we're not putting third world countries, the, you know, a ton of people live in energy poverty. We need to help them. So we need to help bring them up, not keep them suppressed and bring them down. And then also just make sure that we don't have skyrocketing energy prices along with it, like what's happening in Germany right now. So it's very complex. You know, I talked to a, I talked to a really smart kid the other day at um, MIT. Uh, he's got a PhD and he's working on, he's like, man, he's like, I'm using uh, machine learning. He's like, everyone talks about energy transition, but no one talks about how to execute it. He's like, so these major oil companies, like they're in a, He's like, they're in a pickle. He's like, it's not fair to them. He's like, there's, you know, society saying, hey, you have to get off of oil. You have to transition. But no one tells them how to, how to do that and how to do it with being responsible to society and making sure that society doesn't collapse. So it's such a, just a complex topic. It's an exciting time to be in the industry. I mean, it there's is. There's a ton of change going on. It's not clear which way it's going to go, right? Yeah. Um, matters more and more every day. Yeah. And it opens up a lot of opportunity. Yeah, I think it opens up a lot of opportunity, but really they're they're just like very they're different futures, and it it's sort of path dependent. You know, are we going to go towards a path that's still fossil fuels, but with with carbon sequestration? Is it going to be renewables plus batteries? I mean, the amount of lithium alone to do that, it's 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 hard for me to imagine that that's the full solution. Yeah, um, I, I, I've I've really been curious and interested in lithium and lithium mining yeah. and learn quite a bit about that. And, it, you know, there's a, there's a question on if you could actually go to that type of scale in addition to the EV demand. Yeah. Um, there's the hydrogen option. Will nuclear come back into the frame? I hate how nuclear just gets bastardized. I like mean, it's it, a pretty great technology it until it explodes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like in the status yeah, things are great explode. It, it is amazing. You yeah. know, 99.999% of the time it's just producing base load, yeah. relatively low cost like i love like in the, in the texas uh um polar vortex like you saw renewables fall off you saw natural gas ramp up and then fall off but nuclear just <laughs> slow and steady. steady it just, it just steady. Yeah. there's there's like a, a waste question of where are we going to put that yeah um you know now that elon's ro launching all these rockets into outer space for cheaper and cheaper maybe start outer space is the place that you put it. the nuclear waste have you actually seen that um there's uh some research being done and some people trying to pursue actually using uh, horizontal wells to inject 
nuclear waste into it. And I don't see any future for that at all, just because people don't I like us. I cannot imagine the NIMBY. People don't like us injecting, you know, household chemicals and frack and frack fluid. I can't imagine <laughs> yeah, them nuclear waste yeah. at all. I mean, it's for justifiable reasons. People want to have a lot of confidence in whatever the storage solution is going to be for that. Like yeah, it needs 100%. to never come back. But that's another thing too, is with carbon sequestration is that same, same issue there is that if you're going to be injecting this, like me, honestly, I think that carbon captures a little bit of pie in the sky. I think that there's better solutions. Um, but same thing is like, if you're injecting that already, the regulations and, um, standards around that are pretty strict in terms of monitoring it. But if you're putting it back in the ground, you got to make sure that doesn't come back doesn't out. come back out and right now we have a hard time as it is you know with plugged and abandoned wells um issues with those so that's um definitely a lot of challenges there's some pretty good reservoirs down there that you can have confidence in um the good news about co2 is it's not toxic like nuclear waste you it's a it's like a zero percent risk type of scenario you have to go into yeah if, if some co2 came back out it's working against you on a climate perspective yeah. but it's not like a doesn't, super fun site. It doesn't have a 50,000 year half-life right. like nuclear. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a little bit of more tolerance for, you know, some some geologic risk on that. Yeah. As long as it's mostly working the way it's planned to work. Yeah. Did you see our uh, Bitcoin miner yeah, I love uh, behind you? Yeah, that was painted by our friend. Right. So I think that it's a pretty cool it's, representation. It's a painting of me, right? Yeah. 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 I, <laughs> yeah, I asked just Jacob, like him. I was like, who's the character? And he's like, it's just a random person. <laughs> you guys got a lot of resemblance there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's great because it's a representation of, you know, where the energy industry is going. And it's really exciting times. I mean, I think that you're going to look, you know, 50 to 100 years from now, they're going to look back and this period in time is going to be you know, it's going to be pretty important in terms of energy production for the world. So it'd yeah. be interesting to see if Bitcoin well, plays, a, plays a big part in that. I'm glad that you guys are, you know, telling interesting stories from the energy industry that, you know, the reason I like to keep coming back here and, and hanging out with you guys is because it, it is a fascinating industry full of really cool characters that, that gets misrepresented so often yeah. in, in, into just sort of the mainstream. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's fun to just come in here and tell stories about these these long runs and, and yeah, some of the personal man. things. So, and you you made this documentary that you know it sounds like it's going to be coming out soon. Mm -hmm. I got a sneak peek before uh, of this dairy farm and the impact that the Utica's had on this dairy farmer. That's a great story for people to hear. I mean, you did a great job on the production, but just the story, the characters themselves. Um, yeah, I'm very supportive of what you guys are are trying to do and just get the energy industry more into the into the mainstream and show a different angle on it. Um, there's a ton of innovation going on, ton of entrepreneurs trying to genuinely do things that are helpful. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in that group. Hopefully yeah. you and your audience feel the same way. Yep. <laughs> um, and, you know, keep kind of highlighting those stories. Thanks, Thanks man. Appreciate well, no, that. You know, you're welcome on the show anytime. We like uh, chopping it up. Cool. And I don't think uh, I'll ever be joining you on one of those runs, but you know, if you want to talk some MMA and get into that, I can definitely, <laughs> definitely make that happen. <laughs> right. So appreciate you coming on the show, dude. No, really, really appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, yep. great having you, man. If you guys uh, haven't subscribed yet, the uh, BDE Big Digital Energy newsletter is going out every single week, bigger and better than ever. Uh, we're also going to be uh, relaunching a new show here soon. So if you guys haven't subscribed to all the different shows and been on the website and seen everything else that we drop in, Go check it out, digitalwalkheaders.com. Catch you guys in the next episode. Come, 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 come.